This week, what's the best way to prevent contrast-induced nephropathy and is exercise safe in cancer patients? Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today, friends, it's just me and you. We're going to be talking about several clinical topics with some contributions from different and new members of our Roundstable team. I'm going to start by taking you on a bit of a learning journey with me about contrast-induced nephropathy. Uh, It's a topic that has long been something that has troubled me clinically. And so I wanted to dive into it a little bit deeper. There was a systematic review published in the Annals of Internal Medicine about this topic very recently. And so I thought that we would go through the topic and a few different elements of that topic. But before we dive in, let's hear from our very own medical student, Jennifer Peng, who has a skill testing question for you. Hey everyone. It's time for another game of Two Truths, One Lie. In this segment, I'm going to tell you three interesting facts. Two will be real, and one will be a lie. Join us and put your knowledge to the test and see if you can guess which statement is a lie. This week's version is all about hygiene, so let's begin. Statement number one. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers eliminate all types of germs. Statement number two. One in 10 adults will contract an infection while in a Canadian hospital. Statement number three. Over 50% of healthy persons has staph aureus living in their nasal passage, throat, hair, or skin. Think you know which statements were true and which one was the lie? Stay tuned and we'll reveal the answer later on in this episode. Okay, thanks, Jennifer. I have to say that when I first heard those set of options, the correct answer didn't immediately jump out at me. So we are going to keep you all uh, in suspense and give you the answer later on in the episode. So let's dive in and talk about contrast-induced nephropathy. And as a structure for our conversation, I'm going to use a paper that was published by Subramaniam and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which was a systematic and review and meta-analysis about the effectiveness of prevention strategies for contrast-induced nephropathy. And the bottom line of that paper was that there is no strong evidence for any intervention more than volume expansion with saline alone in order to prevent contrast-induced nephropathy, although there may be some promising interventions that require more study. Okay, so the reason I wanted to talk about this is that I find that in clinical practice, I am often faced with the question about whether or not it is safe for me to request an imaging study or an intervention that involves contrast in a patient who may have baseline chronic kidney disease or other risk factors for developing contrast-induced nephropathy. Probably the most common situation in which I see it is a patient who has abdominal pain and needs an IV contrast-enhanced CT scan of the abdomen or someone who needs a CT pulmonary angiogram to rule out pulmonary embolus. And I find that I'm often left wondering First of all, what is the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy in my patient population? And secondly, uh, how can I sort of reduce that risk or mitigate some of those risks? So the basic physiology here, as many of you may know, is that iodine-based contrast medium is important for many imaging studies, but 
Nephrotoxicity is an important side effect of iodine-containing contrast media, and the exact mechanism is not totally clear. It probably involves some vascular effects as well as perhaps some direct nephrotoxic effects. So the definition of contrast-induced nephropathy is a rise in serum creatinine level of greater than 25% of the baseline value or greater than, and this is super specific, of 44.2 micromole per liter rise. There was a systematic review published in 2013 looking at adverse clinical outcomes after coronary angiography and contrast-induced nephropathy, and that found that 33 out of 34 studies reported an increased risk of death in patients who had contrast-induced nephropathy, but the effect size varied a lot between studies. When they looked at studies that adjusted for confounding features, they found that the the pooled adjusted risk was about 2.39, so that the risk of death was more than double in patients who had contrast-induced nephropathy. Okay, so we know that contrast-induced nephropathy is associated with worse clinical outcomes, but who is at risk for developing contrast-induced nephropathy? There was a systematic review on this topic that was published by Sam Silver, uh, who was a nephrologist who trained in the great city of Toronto, and he found 12 prediction models to describe contrast-induced nephropathy, which were quite heterogeneous in terms of the patient populations and uh, the effectiveness of the risk prediction models. But what he did find was that of the high-performing tools, most of them included some common measures. So pre-existing chronic kidney disease was by far and away the single most important risk for contrast-induced nephropathy. The other risks include age, diabetes, heart failure, and hypotension or shock. So those pertain to the patient factors that put people at risk for uh, contrast-induced nephropathy. In terms of other risk factors, the major other risk factor is the type of intravenous or intraarterial contrast that's used. So the very first categorization I already just said, which is whether the contrast is delivered intravenously or intraarterially, intraarterial contrast administration is associated with a greater risk of contrast-induced nephropathy. And then the second categorization is the actual type of the dye that's used. There are three major types. All of the dyes use iodine solutions, but they are categorized according to how osmolar the concentration is. High osmolar contrast is basically fallen out of use. It's the highest risk and pretty much no one uses it. So then we're left with two options. There is low osmolar contrast media and iso-osmolar contrast media. Now don't be fooled because low osmolar contrast media is low when compared to high osmolar contrast media, but it's actually higher osmolarity than iso-osmolar. So iso-osmolar contrast media is basically the same osmolarity as blood, whereas this low osmolar uh, contrast media is several fold higher in terms of its osmolarity. Okay, so overall, the incidence of contrast-induced nephropathy varies. It's been reported at approximately 10%, but as I mentioned, the risks are higher with uh, intra-arterial contrast and with higher osmolarities of contrast and with various patient factors. And the other important point is that it's possible that many of the reported rates of uh, contrast-induced nephropathy overestimate uh, the risk because they're largely conducted in higher risk populations of patients. 
Okay, so the takeaway from all of that background is that contrast-induced nephropathy is fairly common uh, on the order of about 10%, associated with worse clinical outcomes, reported at a doubling rate of mortality. And uh, the single largest risk factor is pre-existing chronic kidney disease, as well as other risk factors like age, diabetes, heart failure, and hypotension. And there are a variety of tools, some of which are more high-performing than others, in order to predict the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy. And we will link to Sam Silver's systematic review of those tools on our website uh, and encourage you to pick a tool that you like that's validated for your patient population and use it. So let's talk about strategies to prevent contrast-induced nephropathy. So there are a variety of strategies. The most common and simplest one is volume expansion with saline uh, intravenously, as opposed to simple oral hydration. The other commonly used strategies are the administration of N-acetylcysteine, or NAC, uh, with the belief that it reduces uh, the oxidative effects of uh, free radicals that might be associated with contrast media. Along the same lines, bicarbonate solution has been suggested to be effective, as well as ascorbic acid or vitamin C. And finally, the use of statins uh, has been proposed to be effective. So Supermunium and colleagues conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis to compare preventive strategies to reduce contrast-induced nephropathy, and they conducted subgroup analyses based on the type of contrast that was used and the route of administration of the contrast. They included both observational and randomized control trial studies, but focused most of their meta-analysis on the randomized control trials. And they specifically looked at N-acetylcysteine, bicarbonate solutions, statins, and ascorbic acid. Their study was funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in the United States. And so here's what they found. They found 86 randomized control trials in total on this topic between 1998 and 2015. The first strategy they looked at was N-acetylcysteine. There were 54 studies of N-acetylcysteine plus saline versus saline alone, and these were 54 randomized control trials, some that used placebo to control for the N-acetylcysteine and some did not use placebo. The studies varied widely in terms of the patient and intervention characteristics, and so overall, these authors rate the strength of evidence about this topic as low. What they found is that N-acetylcysteine plus saline has clinically important benefits, but specifically if low osmotic contrast media are used. And to be clear, low osmotic is higher than the isoosmolar contrast media. In that context, they said that there's a moderate strength of evidence that adding N-acetylcysteine to saline has an important benefit, and they cite a relative reduction in contrast-induced uh, nephropathy of about 31%. If isoosmolar contrast media are used, they said that there's, there was no evidence of an important effect of uh, N-acetylcysteine. Now, out of curiosity, I called my hospital's radiology department and found that, in fact, we use... Uh, an isoosmolar solution. And so now I have been able to convince myself that it is unnecessary for me to use N-acetylcysteine in my patients on the strength of this evidence. The second intervention that they examined was bicarbonate solutions. And they found 19 randomized control trials, but again, very, very heterogeneous. And as a result, the strength of evidence was low, 
but they found that there is no evidence of bicarbonate solutions above saline. Similarly, they looked at ascorbic acid and found eight randomized control trials comparing ascorbic acid with saline and found no statistically significant difference in contrast-induced nephropathy. The final intervention that they examined was statins, and these were specifically in patients receiving intra-arterial contrast. So obviously the predominant reason people receive intra-arterial contrast is for cardiovascular type procedures, whether it's coronary or peripheral. Um, and what they found was a low strength of evidence, but they found that statins seem to have a beneficial effect, particularly when added to N-acetylcysteine at reducing contrast-induced nephropathy with a relative reduction of about 48%, so cutting the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy in half. Okay, so to summarize their findings, regarding N-acetylcysteine, the strength of evidence is not good, and so there's no real compelling evidence uh, to support routine use of N-acetylcysteine, especially if you're using isoosmolar contrast. Uh, although guideline recommendations do vary. So the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines suggest not using N-acetylcysteine routinely, whereas the kidney disease improving global outcomes guidelines suggests using oral N-acetylcysteine in patients who have elevated contrast-induced nephropathy risk. And this is on the basis of the fact that N-acetylcysteine is cheap and safe. And so although the strength of the evidence is not good, what evidence we do have suggests a modest benefit. And so that's where you get the conflicting guidelines. I have to say that I agree with the authors of this paper uh, in that the strength of evidence is not good, especially with the isoosmolar contrast solution. And so I will not use N-acetylcysteine in my practice for now. Okay. With respect to bicarbonate solutions, there's no evidence for its use. Vitamin C, no evidence for its use. And intriguingly, there's a question about statins and whether there may be some benefit, uh, but it hasn't been studied particularly well. And importantly, contrast-induced nephropathy has not really been thought of as an indication for statin use. Uh, and so this is an area for future study, both in patients who have cardiovascular risk factors and those who don't. Okay, so that was my tour of a clinical topic and my afternoon of learning about contrast-induced nephropathy to have shared with you. I hope you found it helpful. Let's check back in with Jennifer Peng for the answers to her Two Truths, One Lie segment. Hey everyone, welcome back to Two Truths, One Lie. Earlier in the episode, we told you guys three statements. Two were true and one was a lie. So to refresh your memory, here they are again. Number one, Alcohol-based hand sanitizers eliminate all types of germs. Number two, one in 10 adults will contract an infection while in a Canadian hospital. Number three, over 50% of healthy persons has staph aureus living in their nasal passage, throat, hair, or skin. So which statement was false? The answer was statement number one, alcohol-based hand sanitizers eliminate all types of germs. According to the CDC, alcohol-based sanitizers can inactivate many types of microbes when used correctly, but often people don't use a large enough volume or wipe it off before it completely dries. Soap and water is more effective at killing certain organisms than sanitizers such as norovirus and C. diff, and is the best way to clean your hands when they are visibly soiled. Did you guess the false statement correctly? Let us know on Twitter by tweeting us at roundstable. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll catch you guys next time. Okay, thanks, Jennifer. So soap and water for C. difficile it is. Next up, we have a 
new segment from a brand new contributor, Dr. Michelle Nadler, about exercise in patients with cancer. And for this segment, our team at the rounds table created a mnemonic device to help you assess cancer patients and make recommendations about exercise. So keep your ears open for our noble attempt. Hi, my name is Michelle Nadler and I'm a resident in internal medicine at McMaster University. I'm here to talk to you today for this clinical segment about something that's really close to my heart, and that is exercise in people with cancer. As an introduction, it's important to know that the five-year overall survival for many cancer sites has improved over the past two decades. So that means there's more people living with cancer and more people living with the side effects of its treatments. Cancer diagnosis can be an emotional time for anybody. Patients often seek control during this period and ask healthcare providers, friends, family, what can I do? How can I help control things? How can I help control my symptoms? And there's actually a growing body of literature that shows that physical activity not only has physical impacts, but also psychological, social, and quality of life benefits for people living with cancer. In fact, in June of 2015, Cancer Care Ontario released the first Canadian guidelines for clinicians on the safety and efficacy of exercise for people living with cancer. They were developed by the Program and Evidence-Based Care Initiative using something called the Agree2 framework. Agree2 is a 23-item validated tool designed to ensure methodological rigor and transparency in guideline development process. What I really want to talk to you guys about today is what these cancer care exercise guidelines say. There's basically six recommendations. Recommendation one is that moderate amounts of exercise while on treatment or after completion of treatments is completely safe. Examples of moderate exercise include fast walking, easy swimming, or easy cycling. While this may seem intuitive, it was previously believed that exercise was unsafe or too taxing on patients given the side effects of chemotherapy. Clinicians used to advise patients to stay in bed and rest while they were on treatment. So this is really a big step forward. Recommendation two is that moderate amounts of exercise are recommended to improve both quality of life as well as muscular and aerobic fitness for people living with cancer. This is important as it translates to being able to participate in activities of daily living and maintaining a person's independence. What's really cool, and we'll have to stay tuned for the results, is that there are currently two really exciting randomized controlled trials underway in prostate and in colorectal cancer, using exercise as the intervention arm that are actually designed and powered to detect cancer-specific outcomes, such as disease-free and overall survival. Recommendation three tells us about the duration, frequency, and intensity of exercise. It's 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise over three to five days per week, and resistance training at least two days per week. Resistance sessions should involve major muscle groups for upper and lower extremities, and each session should involve a warm-up and cool-down. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's almost the same as Canada's physical activity guidelines. Recommendation four goes through a pre-exercise assessment that clinicians should go through to evaluate for any effects of disease, 
treatments, and comorbidities. If any of these raise a red flag, they might want to do more testing before telling patients it's safe to exercise. There's five key parts, and we thought of an acronym to make it easier to remember. NOBLE, N-O-B-L-E, or neuropathy, ostomy, bones, lymphedema, and ejection fraction. So starting with N for neuropathy, for example, if the patient has diabetes or taxane chemotherapy, just note it and take caution because the patient's sensation and balance may be impaired. O stands for the presence of an ostomy. For example, if a patient has had colorectal surgery, you should be cautious when advising exercises which increase intra-abdominal pressure as this can cause problems with the ostomy. B is to think of the bones. And this can range from anything from bony metastases or multiple myeloma. You also have to remember that a patient could be on hormonal therapy, tamoxifen, an aromatase inhibitor, uh, androgen deprivation therapy, and all of those increase a patient's risk of osteopenia or osteoporosis. If so, manage the patient as per osteoporosis guidelines. It's not a contraindication, just something to be aware of. L stands for the awareness of the presence and amount of lymphedema. Again, not a contraindication, be aware of it, and exercise may actually help improve a patient's symptoms of lymphedema. E stands for ejection fraction. It's important to note any cardiac toxicity from anthracycline chemotherapy. However, only a very significant and severe cardiomyopathy is a true contraindication to exercise. So there you have it, noble neuropathy, ostomy, bones, lymphedema, and ejection fraction. Recommendation 5 essentially states there's greater benefits when people exercise in a group or a supervised setting rather than on their own. And recommendation 6 suggests that exercise should be incorporated into individuals' everyday life as part of long-term lifestyle. Those two are pretty straightforward. That's it. That's the bottom line. Or I guess the bottom line is that Exercise is safe with very few contraindications to participation. I hope you've enjoyed this installment of Clinical Encounters. For the abridged three-page summary of the guidelines, or for the full guidelines, please visit our website. All right. Thank you so much, Michelle, for that helpful overview of this important topic. And this is just an opportunity for me to say that it was a delight to receive an email from Michelle uh, and have her contribute to the podcast. So if anyone is out there listening and would like to contribute a topic, please get in touch with me. You can reach me by Twitter at Amol A. Verma or uh, via email amol.a.verma at gmail.com. So this brings us to the conclusion of our episode. And as always, I wouldn't leave you hanging without a good stuff segment. And so my good stuff this week uh, harkens back to a topic that we've covered before. So longtime listeners of the rounds table will remember that we did an article last year about a randomized trial studying the early introduction of peanuts in infants at high risk of developing allergy, which showed that early exposure to peanuts prevents the development of peanut allergy. And that was called the LEAP study. At the end of that study, the investigators instructed all participants to avoid peanuts for 12 months, and they tested the peanut allergy again, so they called that the LEAP-ON study. And so here's what they found. It was The results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. 
So there were 628 patients in the initial trial, and of those patients, they enrolled 556 in the long-term follow-up study. What they found was that after that 12-month holiday from peanut exposure, three new cases of allergy developed in both groups. So this, as you can imagine, was a small and not statistically significant difference. And so in the group that was initially early exposed to peanuts, 4.8% had a peanut allergy in the long-term follow-up after the holiday period, whereas in the group that initially avoided peanuts uh, and then continued to avoid peanuts for 12 months, 18.6% had peanut allergy. So basically, the initial difference that they found remained at the end of this long-term follow-up. And the conclusion you can draw from that is that early introduction of peanuts reduces allergy and that this reduction persists even after 12 months of avoidance, suggesting that it's possible that the early introduction of peanut exposure might actually allow for the reduction of peanut allergy if people just consume peanuts as they wish. Of course, those long-term follow-up studies are ongoing. Okay, thanks everyone for listening again, and we'll be back to you soon with a brand new episode. Have a great week. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.